And so we light the first candle on our Advent wreath. And traditionally the candles represent different aspects. And the first candle represents the patriarchs, those followers of God right back in the beginning of the Old Testament, Abraham. And we remember back because Advent, as I said, is that time of looking back and looking forward. We're preparing and hoping for the arrival of Jesus. But we know that that is based on God's plan, which was there from the very, very beginning. And God promised to Abraham that he would be the father of all nations, that he would have numerous descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God's promise fulfilled through Abraham spread throughout the Old Testament and takes us into the New Testament. So we look back with thanksgiving, knowing from the very beginning God's plan was that Jesus would come. Jesus would come to be that light in the world. Let's pray. A prayer for the beginning of Advent. God, our caring Father, you who gave your beloved Son to ransom all people, see our human fears and love us anyway. Guide us through this season with quiet, glad anticipation. Help us to pay attention to the poor and needy and to the lonely among us. Give us a spirit of reflection, patience with each other, and hearts brimming with thanks. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to have our reading now, so please sit. The reading is taken from Isaiah, chapter 52, verses 1 to 3 and 7 to 10, and can be found on page 739 of the Pew Bible. Awake! Awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength, put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says, You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. And verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices, together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. A lovely passage again 
in the book of Isaiah, one that brings hope, one that will link with the theme that we've been looking at all through this term, understanding Isaiah, and also take us through into the season of Advent. So it's, it's, I think it's a fantastic passage to be looking at today. It's also a passage that helps us think a little bit about mission. I want to explain a little bit why it does that before we then move on and hear some stories. Before I was ordained, I was um, panicking quite a lot. It felt the most awesome and enormous thing that I think I'd ever done. And I knew God was calling me, but at the same time I was absolutely terrified. And you go on retreat... Um, before ordination, which is a time to spend with God. And I really wasn't looking forward to that at all. Some of it was going to be in silence, and I don't really do silence. But there we go. But before that, you start at the cathedral for a rehearsal. And in advance of that, you get sent loads and loads of notes telling you exactly what you need to do and what you have to wear, because obviously the cathedral is an important place and you have to do what's right. And it's said in the paperwork that you had to wear dark shoes. I thought, that's fine. And getting all the garb for ordination was a massive thing as well. I grew up in a vicarage, and my dad wore a dog collar all the time. So wearing a dog collar was a massive problem for me because it reminded me of how he always wore it and never, he didn't even really have a day off. And it just brought back memories of my childhood, and I thought, oh, gosh, this is what I'm going to become, kind of tied to the job and family coming second. All of that was going through in my mind. Wearing a cassock and a surplus, goodness gracious me, the whole thing was absolutely terrifying. And the only bit of choice I had was shoes. And I thought, okay, dark shoes, what am I going to wear? And I went through Guildford Town, trying to find a pair of shoes that I felt were appropriate and comfortable and reflected me and and couldn't find anything at all. And I had a pair of dark brown shoes that I thought, they'll do. They were... They felt all right. They felt as if it was a little bit of me that I could wear. So I got them ready, and we went up to the cathedral where you had to robe. And before we went in to robe for this rehearsal, um, one of the diocesan staff came bustling around, and we had about 20 minutes to wait. And she said, now, I hope you've all got your black shoes. The dean's in a foul mood today, and if he hasn't got black shoes, he's going to be absolutely livid. Well, I just went into complete meltdown. And um, people who knew me had never seen me respond in this way at all. And I thought, I have got the wrong shoes. And I really panicked. And luckily, at that stage, we lived quite near the cathedral. And I thought, what can I do? What on earth can I do? And I thought, well, I've got some friends who live nearby. And I jumped in my car, and all my colleagues were saying, what on earth are you doing? I said, I've got to get the right shoes. And I went whizzing to Stoughton and knocked on one door, and my friend was out. I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? Someone from church lived further on the road, and luckily she understood me. And I knocked on the door. I said, oh, Debbie, it's lovely to see you. I said, Celia, this is mad. You think I'm absolutely crazy. I said, but do you have a pair of black shoes? And she said, yes, why? I said, I've got the wrong shoes. And Victor at the cathedral is going to be mad. And she's always such a stupid man, as if it would matter. (laughs) She said, but yes, I've got some black shoes. So she ran upstairs, got me a pair of black shoes. Luckily, they fitted. And I drove back to the cathedral just in time to go in. Went to um, the retreat. And the first passage that was read was Awake, Awake, O Zion, that goes on to say how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And another passage from Ephesians 6 that was paraphrased, Wear what shoes that are necessary in order to bring peace. (laughs) 
And I really thought God was saying something to me. And it was incredibly powerful. It sounds frivolous. But it was incredibly powerful. Because the whole theme of that ordination retreat was about doing what you need to do to proclaim God's peace, to be his messenger, and to announce his salvation. And when it came down to it, all that God was asking me to do was to do whatever it took to proclaim God's peace, be his messenger, and announce his salvation. And to do that is me. It was still a most awesome and terrifying task to be ordained. But I felt I could do it because I felt God was saying, this is all I'm asking of you, to be you and to do whatever you need to do in order to do that as you. And it's about proclaiming God's peace, about being his messenger and about telling people of his salvation. And that is what mission is all about. Mission is about telling the world about what God is already doing. Because God is already at work. This passage says, tell the world what God is already doing. That is the most amazing thing, and we forget it as Christians. We think we're starting from scratch every single time. That somehow we've got to actually do all the work. All we need to do is be God's messenger. Because God is at work in the world. The proper term for that, theological term, is missio dei. The mission of God. He is already at work in the world. And we, as his followers, watch what he is doing. And do whatever we need to do, equipped by him, being ourselves, to actually focalise that, to articulate it. It might not even be with words. It might even be as his hands and his feet. So we're going to hear today about two areas of local mission that we are involved in. And I don't think we've ever really talked about them as mission partners. But I think it's important that we recognise that some of the things that we are involved in is involved in God's mission. And we're going to hear about footsteps, which is very much about being God's hands and feet, doing what God would want us to do, caring for those who are less fortunate than ourselves and Isaiah is full of that care for the poor and we're also going to hear about our school and a little bit later I'm going to explain why I want us to think about the school as mission as well but I'm really pleased because I don't need to say much more from now on but John Wallace is going to come and share firstly about footsteps it's a great privilege to be asked to speak about footsteps And as Debbie has just mentioned, for us to think about the poor and needy, and nobody could be more uh, in in that that position than the people we deal with at Footsteps on a Sunday evening. Debbie has been very instrumental in supporting uh, Footsteps as part of our mission focus, not just based on uh, on hearsay from me, but she's actually been to the coalface, and she's met the volunteers, she's met the guests who were there, she's served soup and... uh, As I recollect, on that particular afternoon, she shared a cracking um, laugh with a a rather uh, dubious storyline that one of the guests was telling us, but he was terribly funny, and you couldn't but uh, feel uh, charmed by him. Now, Footsteps meets in Beverly Hall in Guildford, and I don't know if any of you know where that actually is. It's new premises for us. We've just moved from the community centre, which was raised for for the new Waitrose 
project. This is the front door, and I went on a, on a, a mission to take some photographs last, last Sunday afternoon when I knew I was going to be talking to you, and uh, at three o'clock, this was, this was Guildford at three o'clock last, last Sunday afternoon, so neither the best time to take photographs, nor in fact the best time for the guests to start congregating outside, waiting, us, waiting for us to open up. It looks, it's in Hayden Place, so perhaps not the sort of part of Guildford many of us would really go to, other than on the, uh, similar shot, on the left-hand side, all that hoarding is, uh, is against the, uh, the Waitrose site, so one of these days this area is going to be very gentrified. This is a little bit later, so hardly any darker, but at least we were in, in the building by then, and hopefully on these miserable winter nights, that big round window lit up like that will actually act as a bit, a bit of a beacon for our guests, whether they're the regular ones or they're, they're new. We, we, we never have a consistent number of guests, and some, some visit from, from quite a distance away just because they've heard about footsteps. This is, this is the inside of these new premises. Now, I would say, typical architect, white everywhere and impossibly uncomfortable chairs. That's what we have, have to put up with. So this, this is at the beginning. One of, one of the new requirements of these premises is that uh, the guests all have to sign in now, apparently, for, a, for fire safety so that we can count them all out again as well and make sure no one's slipped upstairs and secretly uh, sleeping underneath one of the tables. Then this is... The volunteers, a shot of the volunteers underway. A huge pile of bananas is always incredibly uh, encouraging. They love bananas, amongst other specifics. We open up at 4.30 for the guests to come in and don't open the, sh the shutter to start serving food until 5 o'clock. And in that half hour, it's absolute mayhem in the kitchen, but we all seem to know what we do. Someone's looking after the soup, making sure that's not boiling or whatever, and that's... That's as action, as shot as I managed. And this is a final shot. I've talked to you in the past when we've had the big card uh, about we being over, open for Christmas Day as well. And this is a Christmas dinner that we aim to serve. So we, we, we would serve 40, 50 people a proper Christmas dinner like that. So it, it, it's not something cobbled and maybe a bit of a turkey sandwich or whatever. whatever. It, it's as good a Christmas dinner as you would be plating up for your family at home. It was founded in 1989. A lady who was a member of the congregation of St. Joseph's Church realised that Guildford too had a homeless problem. And along with um, St. Nicholas, St. Mary's, Holy Trinity and Guildford Methodist and Baptist churches, she galvanised them into some form of action. Footsteps was born and from then, every Sunday afternoon, we've, we've opened our doors to look after the, the homeless of Guildford. Apparently, when it opened in 19, January 1990, the demand was so great that they held two sittings from 6 until 8 and 8 until 10. So when you're a volunteer and not finishing until 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, that's, that's really quite late before you're even thinking of getting home for, to start your working week. Every, every session I gather in, in, in the 90s was packed. Since then, we've changed times. We've reduced it down to one session, fortunately, and as you've seen, we've changed venues. Now, Footsteps was founded to provide hot drinks, nourishing food, free of charge, in a comfortable environment to the homeless and needy men of women and Guildford every Sunday, where guests can relax and feel accepted. Volunteers don't judge. It's not up to us to say, 
or if, if, we, if we gather that perhaps someone might have a, a flat or, or whatever, it's not up to us to say, well, you're not homeless. If, if they feel the need that they, they can get some food from us, then everyone is welcome. It's run solely by volunteers. We, we don't make any charge, and it's purposefully on a Sunday because the lady who, who established the idea of it realised that nothing happened between a Saturday and Monday when some of the other services opened up. And for 40, 50 people wandering around Guildford with nowhere to go, that was a mighty long time to, to go without absolutely anything. Also, I, I think I, I might have said to you in, in, in the past at Christmas time, I, I thought it was... A, a relatively new concept that we were going to serve Christmas lunches. Apparently that was another one of the founding principles. So, uh, so roast turkey has always been there every Christmas Sunday, every Christmas day. But on a normal Sunday, we would typically prepare homemade soup, a wide choice of sandwiches, fresh fruit, cakes and hot and cold drinks. We open, as I've said, open at 4.30, plate up and get things ready for, for the guests as they're filtering in to take advantage of everything at, at, at five o'clock. We can open up the shutters and find we've got 25 guests. We can open up and find we've got 45 and they're more queuing outside. But there is never any, anything predictable. The, the weather has no implications on whether we have more or less, less people. If the soup is right, and more often than not, that's what we hope, we, we, we get people very cheekily coming. They're not cheeky. No, they, they come up with this huge grin and say, is there any more? If, when they love it, you know they love the food when they love it. And the, 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 the soup cauldron will go down, and you just hope that no one's going to come in late and say, is there any? And you have to say, sorry, it's all gone. But we do realise that if there are egg sandwiches, the cooks never make enough, and egg sandwiches are always blitzed, as are sausage sandwiches. But uh, cheese and ham and with masses and masses of Branston pickle and pickled onions are always, uh, always a pretty keen favourite. And in fact, chocolate cake gets put on, on plates that are smeared in, in Branston pickle, but they don't seem to mind how, how, how they eat their chocolate cake. There have been instances where we've run out of bread in particular, and we, we have a team of six each Sunday, and someone has to go up. Fortunately, there is more of a choice of, uh, of supermarkets open on a Sunday evening now, and, and, and buy more bread. And in fact, the other, only the other Sunday, Diane Bridges was on duty with me, and we ran out. We weren't expecting to, and but Diane spent from five o'clock until half past six on non-stop sandwich production, putting together the, uh, the, the material, the, the food we'd already got, which hadn't been sandwiched up, and then when more loaves had to be sent for, she just did, didn't stop. But it all went, it was all appreciated, and it was, it was a great delight to be able to fill the need of these other people. We have six volunteers each, each session, and there'll be cooks who'll have prepared the soup and some of the sandwiches in advance. Now, I've been involved with Footsteps for coming up to ten years now. That was because some of you may remember Jenny Jeb, who um, actually was a volunteer before me, and, and she put a notice in, in our parish magazine saying they were running short of volunteers. And I thought, oh, this is quite an interesting thing to, to, to see if I, I could help with. And of course, uh, that, was, that was it. And I, I haven't really, really stopped. So one awareness of footsteps has been going since long before me in that case. But, but I think it's perhaps been brought more to your notice when somebody suggested perhaps I'd already done the big card Jeff might have asked me for to, to put one up for our internal Christmas greetings and uh, someone said where's the money going for well, why don't they go doesn't it go to footsteps and that, that has now been uh, so the two are, are, are intertwined 
So all of you, in, in one way or the other, whether you volunteer or, or just contribute via the big card or other donations, you've, you've all been involved for quite a while. Altogether, there are about 50 volunteers at Footsteps. Seven of the, uh, of, of the 50 are the, are the cooks who spend all Saturday afternoon shopping and all su- Saturday evening and, and, and Sunday morning preparing the food. And a jolly good number of you come from this congregation. I, I, I can sort of quickly list through all of you. We have Cassie Rowley, Diane Bridges, Andrew Bain, John and Maureen Nolan, Tim Ashley Smith, Simon Smith, and me. But as well as that, Katka, when she was here, used to come along and, and enjoy it. Darren is coming along tonight to, to try it out. And last Christmas, on Christmas Eve, the Hutley family spent the whole of Christmas Eve afternoon clearing the hall and setting it all up for our Christmas lunch the next day, which was a great help. Now, on the, on the financial side, Footsteps financial year runs from June to June, and the, and the most recent figures available were up till June of 2013, when our expenditure was £6,400, which was to cover food, the hire of the hall, and our, our insurance liabilities. We asked the cooks to try and keep to, to an £80 budget per session, but one of the founding principles of Footsteps is nourishing food, which of course is increasingly hard to keep to within a, a very limited budget when you're talking about large quantities. Unfortunately, many of the cooks shun budget ranges that some of these supermarkets offer and, and do choose quality food, whether that pushes the budget up or whether they're, they're kind enough to, uh, to make out the balance themselves. I don't know, but it's so interesting when you're serving food that the better the quality of the bread as much as anything, it's directly correlated to the amount of appreciation you get. Good sandwiches, and they'll come back, big smiles, can I have more? Oh, they were brilliant. They might seem the most basic of cheese sandwiches to you, but in a nice nice loaf, they're they're just what, what what our guests want. So, £40 for the hall, are the charges for the hall, £80 for the food, which actually, with a budget of, of, of that 6500 left £140, yes, 140 for Christmas lunch for 40 which uh, is a bit optimistic. I think we might have sort of dipped into the, in, into the red on, 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 on that occasion. We get an annual grant of £2,000 a year from Guildford Council. Now, £2,000 in, uh, in 1990 was fine. It, it paid for absolutely everything, whereas at our expense rates today, it buys a 16 weeks' worth of provision for the homeless. So donations, of course, are, are a major contribution. And we, Footsteps had its, its, uh, its most recent AGM um, only last month. And I'm very pleased, I'm very proud to be able to say, and relay to you, that Wanish Church was particularly mentioned for the generosity of all its donations. In fact, you were the biggest private donor of all our donations, so thank you very much. I've been asked to thank you from from the management. We try and provide links to other agencies where where our homeless guests might be seen particularly vulnerable. There's the number five drop-in hostel in York Road, but more often than not, with only 12 beds, that's already booked. But if people don't know about it, if they're new to the area, then we, we do put them in that direction. And they know perhaps if they can't get in on Sunday evening, then they might well be able to get in on Monday. 
Sometimes we also, during the course of a, of a Sunday evening, we might have a visit from the team from HOST, which is the acronym from Guildford Borough's Homeless Outreach Support Team. They come along, they, they'll talk to people, they'll, they'll try and get an understanding of, of where they are, what their problems are, what they need. But Sunday evening is always very problematic in, in trying to solve problems because nothing really kicks in until till Monday morning. But at least they leave with a notebook full of items that they have to address. They are so varied. You, they, they must come from every cliché that you would expect. They've lost their jobs, then their family has broken down, and, and, and life has become that downward spiral that you do hear about. And, and these are actual people who have experienced those very problems that there might have been. I, I don't always ask. I, I find that is intrusive. But if, if they come along and they want to talk, then, then that's fine. They can be any age. It, it's, it's as sad to see lads in, in, in their upper teens as it is to see elder people in their 50s and 60s living such a, a helpless life. As I've said, we can get 25 to 45. There's never any justification and you don't always see the same people. So it's not as if we have a, a target population of 45. We probably have a target... Uh, if we had a register, it, it would probably lead, lead to 70 or so names. We just see different people at different times. And the unfortunate thing for, I find for, for being a volunteer on, on a monthly or so basis is that you don't have much continuity with the people you see. Some of them will open up to you. They'll tell you the most sad of, of tales and you think, yes, how, how can I help them? I could do this, I could do that. But A, you can't tell if you go back the, in a month's time when you're next on duty if they'll be there. And B, you don't know whether it would have been the right thing to have done anyway. I think last... Christmas, I told you about Polish Chris, who I had to take up to London to get a replacement uh, passport. And then he asked if he could go to the British Museum. Well, he uh, unfortunately has spent the intervening year just falling off the bang and the wagon repeatedly. I, I, I have in the past taken him to AA and, 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 and such agencies in Guildford. I don't think he stands the course. He, he's been funded for going over to Woking where there are classes uh, for English as a foreign language, student, mature students, and he does, just doesn't bother with that. So um, I'm sorry to say he, he's always pleased to see me, but I find him more of a challenge. The mission side of things, I could tell you some, some stories. Mark, who's a delightful young man, he, he, his, the, the smile from his eyes are fabulous. And even if he did alarm me a little on one occasion when he said, I want to be a cage fighter, he suddenly found a, found a purpose in life. A 23-year-old lad decided he was going to be a cage fighter. He, he came staggering up to, up to the kitchen one afternoon full of bravado and said, to, yeah, you're all part of the God squad, aren't you? And uh, it, it was a bit intimidating to be confronted like that. And, uh, and I think my response, as I say, was a bit wishy-washy. But there have been other instances where God's presence has been overwhelming. It's been, for me, certainly, it, it's been wonderful and, and an amazing surprise. A couple of occasions spring to mind. One, a chap called Leon, he arrived very much the worst for wear, and uh, he, he, he kept coming up to the counter, perhaps repeatedly for cups of tea. And on one occasion, I, th I thought, I've got to look after you. So I said to him, um, would you like me to come and chat to you? And he said, uh, please yourself. So I said, oh, well, there we go. I said, you go and find us a table and, uh, and I'll come and, come and join you, which, which he did. He was 
incredibly intimidating to begin with. I actually thought he's going to smash me to um, smash me up, shall we say, because he was a very powerfully built guy. But when uh, seemingly when, when he realised I was going to be there with him for as long as he needed, he he opened up to me, and he very tragically he told me that he tried to take his life the night before, and he'd been put in a police cell for the rest of the night, effectively to cool off as if he'd been drunk. And he just found himself in Guildford. So I thought, goodness me, how, how do we answer this? Because I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a trained counsellor in any way whatsoever, but the Holy Spirit just flooded me with, with questions and, and reasons. He, uh, he had tried to, um, to take his life because he was still grieving several years later after his infant daughter had died as a result of a cot death. And he had had no counselling whatsoever, and he and his girlfriend just couldn't cope with it, and their relationship had crumbled, and, and he was alone. And, and he, he, was, he was clearly desperate, and I, I tried to make sense of it for him. And he looked at me at the end and said, I didn't think of it like that, thank you. And I went home praying and thanking God so much that I had been able to, to make him understand the desperation that he'd been facing. Anyway, I, I befriended him along the way, and as it got to Christmas time, he, he was in a hospital ev- eventually, and I was able to, um, to go and visit him on several occasions. I took him some, book, uh, took him some Christmas presents. He was, he was an absolutely avid reader, but because he read so much, I, I scoured Waterstones. I thought it's got to be an upbeat book he, he needs, and I, uh, I gave him these as, a book as one of the presents and ripped it open in front of me. He said, no, no, save it for Christmas Day. No, no, I've got to see what, what you've bought me. He ripped it open, and whereas everyone at Footsteps is always amazingly polite, he just looked at it. He didn't say thank you. That did come later. But he looked at this Christmas present and just said, it's new. And I thought, what sort of Christmases have you had? I knew his father had kicked him out at 16. But if he was, was being given a, a new book, I thought... We, we buy new things for our friends for, our, for Christmas presents. But it was a, a revelation to him, and it was, made me feel so humble. But maybe I got it right with him. There are other times when I haven't got it right. There was, um, there was a fight going on outside the, during the summer months, and I would do anything to get that calmed down, because I don't want the police there. They, the, the police upset the, uh, the, the people who come in and I think if we can settle it internally then fine and, and they don't feel threatened by the, by the law fight, fight going on so I went out and, uh, and, and said to the two protagonists come on, come on Jay inside please go and sit over there have a cup of tea and the, the other chap I, 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 I recognised him I said go on you come in and sit no I don't want to he, he was the younger one the early 20s his arms flailing all over the place blood coming down from his nose and he was so cross with the world and me come, come on come in inside have a cup of tea no 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 come, don't be silly and then the, the, the coup de grace shouted at me and you don't even know my name which made me feel that big. And I said, I'm terribly sorry, I don't. I'm sorry I knew the other guy's name. What is it? It's Neil. And I've always then thought that it is so important to try and know these people by name, just so they feel that we care for them. So, with two little illustrations like that, hopefully that's given you a, a, a snapshot of footsteps. But I hope it's given you an insight 
into what we get up to, who we serve, and, and thank you for your ongoing and always generous donations. A real example of doing what God wants us to do, to care for those in need and to be his hands and his feet. You'd have heard last week about um, the fantastic news that Wanish and Shamley Green School had received an um, outstanding result in Ofsted, which is incredible because actually not many schools these days are receiving that category. And it is an amazing joy and privilege that we have a church school that we are involved with and part of and is outstanding. It is absolutely incredible. And more and more, the National Church is cottoning on to the fact that church schools are a real place of mission. In the past, we've thought of that mission looking like the school existing and the church over here and the church having all the God stuff and taking it into the church school. And we're allowed to do that because of the foundation of the school. And that was the way in which mission happened. And to some extent that is still true, because we have a place of going in and being able to speak. But actually, going back to Missio Dei, the mission of God, God already at work in the world, we are seeing that God is at work in our church schools because of their foundation, because they are set up with a Christian ethos. And there is scope within every church school for every child to explore the spiritual side, as in every school. But in a church school, they're given the language of God to match that. So they're being opened up to sense the spiritual side of the world. And they're being given the tools and the language of Christian faith. And children are meeting God in schools way before the church ever goes in and joins them. And we're realising that the church schools are a beacon and a source of mission. Sadly, and this is an endowment of the church, there are more children in church schools than there are in churches on a Sunday. So actually, we've got to realise what's going on in schools and join in with what God is already doing in those places. Because people... Children and their families, as a result, are meeting God in our church schools. And we have one that we are part of, and it is an outstanding school. And so it's a place of mission and one of our mission partners. And Helen and Chris are governors. They are foundation governors. They're there to help support the foundation, the Christian ethos of the school, but also to help it run. And they're going to come and share a little bit about what they do and why they do it and what they see happening there. We'd start by sort of talking to you a bit about what being a governor involves. And then Chris is going to talk a bit about the work she does on one of the two main committees. One is children and learning and the other one is resources and buildings. And then we're going to talk about why we decided to become governors <laughs> and some of us why we signed up for two terms and then also ending on what we love about the school so what does being a governor involve it's a legal responsibility and Debbie was talking about being scared about when she was going forward for ordination and it is no less scary when you read all the detail of what a governor involves because it's quite a big responsibility it's a legal responsibility for the running of a school um, the head teacher is obviously responsible for the day-to-day running, and we you know that we're not there to sort of get involved with that. And guess what we're really there to do is to provide 
support, counsel, and a bit of challenge as well. And I guess you'd liken us to a board of executive directors with the one big difference, none of us are paid and we're all volunteers. And it's quite a unique system because when you try and talk to people from other countries, they don't quite get how this ever evolved and how it happens and the fact that we have the system in the UK. But our governors all come with a huge range of skills and experience, some from having been, like Chris, worked in education for years and years, others from sort of business and marketing backgrounds, people like me with none of those, but I come from a, a sort of a communications, marketing type background and a passion for education, I suppose. There are different types of governors. We've got parent governors, teacher governors, those are representative from the local education authority, and ex-officio positions. They're the ones you can't get out of. So like Debbie, she has no choice. <laughs> Sally Davis at Shamley Green has no choice, and neither does Tess as the um, head teacher. And also, for more importantly, what Debbie's already talked about, is for Church of England schools, we have diocesan and foundation governors, and Chris and I are both foundation governors. So we are appointed by the PCC from Chris and I from Wanush with Blackheath, and there are others who also come from Shamley Green. Okay, my turn. Um, I just really want to underline what Debbie said about being a foundation governor. Our responsibility is to maintain and support the Christian commitment and ethos of the school, and you'll hear a little bit about that. It's not just about assemblies or attending Christmas and Easter services. It's much more than that. It's about day-to-day -day living um, as, as Christians and helping ensure that this permeates, filters right through the whole of school life. Um, there are three main areas for governors, and we work very hard on looking at finance, buildings, and children and learning, the two main committees. And, and I'm going to carry on and talk a little bit about children and learning. That's what it's all about. We work with Tess, the head teacher, to look at and review all aspects of teaching and learning in the school. We have to look at the progress being made by the children. And you've already heard that we have very high levels of achievement and we have to make sure that that's still happening. But very importantly, we support the creative and exciting curriculum that the school offers to all their children and we monitor those aspects. We have a school development plan each year, and that's, I suppose, if you're going to talk um, strategy, it's a strategy for the school, where the school is moving to. We have to plan, we have to review, we have lots of things like curriculum policies, and we have to look at those. The Children and Learning Committee meets at least once a term, but the joy of it all is we get the opportunity to see the school at work, and that's just wonderful. It's a great privilege to see what's going on. Each of the committee members are linked to an area of the curriculum, and I'm particularly blessed because I actually look at RE and collective worship, and that's wonderful just for me. I learned so much from those children. The visits, when they're made, we look at work around the school, we talk to the children, we listen to what the teachers are saying, and we go on what we call learning walks, which is wonderful. You're looking at some marvellous things. Um, it's a pretty busy time. Okay, so we talked about children and learning. I'm involved with the resources and buildings. So um, 
and not that I knew very much about resources or finance, which John T would definitely corroborate, um, but I've learnt, worked very closely with our amazing school business manager, Jill. So if any of you have come across her, she's just the most incredible, dedicated. She goes way beyond the hours that we pay her, and she's completely committed to the school. And we oversee all finance-related matters. So preparing the draft and final budgets, um, getting approval from the whole governing body, as well as the resources committee, ensuring that we have a budget that's going to support, enable us to deliver the school development plan. So if we've got the school development plan, does it tie in? Have we got the staffing in place? Have we got, are we buying the right kinds of equipment that's going to enable us to deliver um, our school development plan? We look at short and long-term planning, although it's all a bit in flux because it seems to move the whole time. And we also have the added complication of an awful lot of what we do is obviously on the academic year, but the finance is done on a financial year. So it's making sure that we've got enough finance to see us through the academic year, but also meet the requirements of the financial year. Um, we look at a lot of policies as well and just making sure they're up to date. There are no formal qualifications required to do the role, which is scary, I know, but true. Um, so I've just immersed myself in an awful lot of training courses over the last few years. Um, and we also are very lucky because a lot of our members have come from finance and business backgrounds, which is invaluable, so that's really helpful. Um, and over the past three years, I've ended up being chair of the Resources Committee, um, following reassurance from Alex Vinal that it was all very straightforward. She was right... <laughs> mostly, um, but I hadn't quite planned for the transition to become a through primary um, nor a major school build, but luckily again we've got somebody on our governing body who is really experienced at building projects because it's what he does, um, even bigger ones than the ones we've just done. So, why did we decide to become governors? Uh, I, I came from not knowing very much. I had known for a number of years that I really wanted to become a governor at some point. And a, job, a position came available, but the children were too little, so I left it. But then it was still available a few years later, so I then decided I ought to just take the plunge. And I try and do something scary every year, and that was my thing for that year. Um, but as, during my time as a governor, I have grown hugely um, as a person, as a governor, but also as a Christian. And, you know, just seeing the school as Chris was talking about, what it means to be part of a Christian school and what a difference that really makes. Um, I've learned to have very difficult conversations, which again, is not, I'm not comfortable with, but that's been really good, and working through those, and we've obviously dealt with a lot of strategic issues in the last few years, and I feel very privileged to work with such an extraordinary group of people, really, and I've got to know some amazing people along the way. Chris. Thanks, Helen. I think I have to say that it's not just about giving. Um, I've learned an awful lot, too. Helen's already said that I've worked in education for a very long time. But I think I've learnt the importance of being patient and trusting that things will work out okay. And it's um, the ability to strike a balance being known when to challenge and ask that difficult question or when to walk with and let it ride. And I think I've also got a deeper understanding that all this is in God's time and not our own. Um, I think we need to, Helen, we need to thank the other people who help a lot in school, lots of other people, People who go into class, help hearing readers, assisting teachers. Um, from a church point of view, open the book, assemblies happen every other week. And a large team of people from our congregation of Bramley go in and lead assemblies, retelling Bible stories. And of course, there's lots of support behind the scenes too. 
For example, Tony Pratt, who independently examines the Governor's Fund accounts, a number of parents from our congregation, our family, who are actively involved in the PTA and in other ways. Alex Vinal works hard at the Diocese Supporting Schools, and Colin Matthews, who is the Chair of the Diocesan Board of Education. We are very grateful for all they do. So what do we love about the school? It should probably be what we love most about the school because we could probably both go on for a very long time. Um, I think the joy and energy of everyone, there is something about when you're around children and it's just their unbridled enthusiasm and passion and um, the love and the laughter that they bring and their ability to be honest as well, you know, even in, in sort of really tricky times. I think seeing the commitment and the dedication of teaching staff um, seeing how they deal with all the change, seeing how they um, bring the children on in each of the years that they sort of have them, um, and the impact and the difference they really make in children's lives. I th I'm always humbled by that. And then Chris just wants to say a few things that were raised from our recent SIAMS inspection as well. That, that inspection took place in the summer, and I picked out just a couple of short paragraphs um, that the inspector wrote about the, sc about the school. Sorry. Um, the openness and confidence with which pupils share their thoughts and views on matters of faith contributes to a growing awareness of the place of belief in their lives. And secondly, the quality of opportunities for prayer in the life of the school reflects the school's visions to bring its Christian ethos alive for pupils. Now, I've been very privileged this week. I've been in school with my RE hat on, and the school has been doing a topic on peace. And to finish Helen and, and my little talk, a six-year-old wrote, a butterfly is a symbol of peace because they're colourful and people will be quiet as they want to see them a little bit longer. That's special. Thank you. Science is the inspection that looks at the, the faith side. Ofsted isn't necessarily there to do that, but the Ofsted inspector, in her feedback, said she had never been in a school where she had such a strong sense of the spiritual being. And that was just, for me, the most amazing thing that she could have said. For Ofsted to comment on the spirituality of the school was incredible. 